Amen, amen. All right, we're on part five of our series called Unceasing, A Vision for Night and Day Prayer. Uh, this will be our last uh, message in the series. And we've, you know, we've come kind of a long way. We've actually been on this since October. We had a couple interruptions with the elections and a prophecy service and different things. But, uh, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, we, we talked about how, you, you know, we were created to be priests before the Lord and to minister to God. And, and that's our first calling and our, 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 our first, you know, uh, identity before the Lord. And, and then we answered the question of why would you do night and day worship and prayer? Uh, why would you have to go 24-7? And we, we answered that question with this, that Jesus isn't worthy of 24-7. He's worthy of 25-8. Jesus Christ is worthy. That's the answer. And so, uh, and then we showed Jesus' zeal for the house of prayer and, and what it was like when he was there uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in his day. And, and, and my, he, when he made the declaration, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Well, just as we're wrapping up, I want to uh, talk tonight. If you can't do uh, any kind of a, a series on night and day worship and prayer, if you don't talk a, bit, a little bit about David. I mean, he's the first human that set up a 24-hour reality of worship and prayer on the planet. So if you're talking about 24-7 worship and prayer, you got to talk about David. And, and here's a little principle uh, for you from the scripture. When you see somebody whose life is, is really explained in detail in the scripture, I'm talking about besides Jesus, take note because the Lord is trying to speak to us about himself through that person's life. So when you look at David and you see these chapters and chapters and chapters, I mean, a couple, you know, several books of the Bible and all the Psalms, when you see somebody so emphasized, take note, the, the Lord's not trying to tune us into David. He's trying to tune us into himself through David's life. And so uh, this last session, we'll talk about David. And, and some of this will be very familiar to you, but I think right now, this is an, an important time that we need a bit of a reminder about what it means to have a heart like David's, amen? And so, uh, as I said, David was the first human to set up night and day worship and prayer on the earth. Uh, he was king in Israel for about 40 years. Uh, about 33 and a half of those years were in Jerusalem. Uh, some people don't realize that, that he was king for about seven years and then, then finally made king in Jerusalem. And, and so 40 years in total, uh, 33 and a half years in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is where he actually set up night and day worship and prayer. That's where we have the biblical account of him going and getting the Ark of the Covenant and bringing it back to Jerusalem and setting it up, setting it up in a, a tent and starting with the, the singers and the musicians there before the Ark. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting because we, we have this phrase that God says about David that David was a man after God's own heart. But the first time that God said that about David wasn't after he set up night and day worship and prayer. It wasn't when he became king. It wasn't even when he was anointed king. It was before that when David was about 13 years old. Now here's the thing, this statement, I found a man after my own heart. That statement, it's something we're familiar with in Christianity. If you've been around any amount of time, you've heard something about that statement, a man after God's own heart. The problem is that statement cannot be a cliche for us because that statement is huge. 
That statement is ridiculous. I mean, in a good way. That God would say of a human being, I found a guy. I found a guy and that guy, he's after my own heart. You, you can't overemphasize the importance of a statement like that. I just, you know, I just, as I was just letting this scripture just set over me this week, it's one I've looked at so many times. I'm just letting that set over me this week. David, a man after God's own heart. I just, I had to just insert myself in it and I go, okay, if they were, if the Lord were to say of me, Billy, a man, dot, 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 fill in the blank, what would he say? And I would encourage you, just take a moment and think that through. Just put your name in the sentence. Think your name and put it right in that sentence. A man or a woman, and then God fills out the sentence. What would he say? Now we know God's kind to us. He's not going, a person who never got it right. He's not doing that. That's, that's the devil. But, but could the Lord say a man after God's own heart about you and I? A woman after God's own heart? Is that what he would say? Or, you know, what he'd say? He was trying, you know, he's giving it his best shot. You know what I mean? Like, and I just started letting that set over me. And I started realizing the enormity of that, that the Lord could find a man and say of that man, he's a man after my own heart. Man after my own heart. And get it, get it straight. He said it when, he was, when David was 13 years old. It was 1 Samuel 13. And I'll just tell some stories from the life of David that I, it's something I've studied and read quite a bit so I can just reference the passage and then tell you the story. But, but basically, 1 Samuel 13 there was a battle. Samuel had told Saul, he says, I want you to go and wait seven days for me. I will then come. Samuel says, I will then come. I will do a sacrifice. And, uh, and so uh, what happens is the seven days pass. There's, there's Saul. The people are all looking at Saul like, hey, we got serious problems. We got the, the army of the enemy and they're, they're growing in numbers and and where's Samuel, Saul? Where's Samuel, Saul? And Saul's like, Ugh, I don't know. He's late. These prophets are always late. And, <laughs> and it says the people begin to scatter. And there's Saul. And he's, he's faced with a real test. Will he obey the voice of the Lord and disregard the voice of the people? Or will he obey the voice of the people and disregard the voice of the Lord? And unfortunately, he does the latter. He disobeys the Lord, he obeys the people, he does the sacrifice himself, and, and he does the sacrifice, and when he does the sacrifice, wouldn't you know, that's when the prophet shows up. What you been doing, Saul? I've been obeying the Lord. That's what he said. I, I've been obe obeying the Lord. Oh, really? You took matters into your own hands and you did a sacrifice. You've not obeyed the Lord. In fact, and this one is just a crazy thought. Samuel says to Saul, he goes, your kingdom would have been established forever. But instead, the Lord has taken it from you and given it to another. 
That is, I mean, that is so hard to even swallow. Your kingdom would have been, what is he saying? He's saying this, God would have made it so that Messiah came from the line of Saul. Hosanna to the son of David, when Jesus is on the triumphal entry, would have been Hosanna to the son of Saul. The Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but instead he's taken it from, his, from you and given it to a man after God's own heart. Now here's Samuel prophesying this thing. And certainly Samuel is just, he's in shock because Saul, remember, Saul was the tallest of his tribe. He was this warrior. He'd gotten into the spirit of prophecy. The Lord had anointed him. I mean, for a minute, things were going really, really good with Saul. And Samuel had great affection for Saul. We even find Samuel three chapters later in 1 Samuel 16, and he's still mourning because the Lord has removed Saul as king. He hasn't taken him completely out of office, but he's already prophesied. He's removing him as king. In 1 Samuel 16, it starts off. He says, how long will you mourn for Saul? He says, I want you to get up, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to go to Jesse's house, and you're gonna anoint one of his sons as king. And just pause the narrative right there. Here's the deal, though, to me. 13-year-old David equals a man after my own heart. Now, just the first part of that sentence is interesting. He's 13 and God calls him a man. I've been around a lot of 13-year-olds, especially in my own house. And my young men, they're awesome. But God says forcefully, a man, and he's 13. And there's something about that 13-year-old David who's actually taken ownership of his relationship with the Lord. He's actually taken ownership of it himself and God says, essentially to, to the young man, I'm not relating to you through your parents. I'm not relating to you through your, your, your brothers or anyone else. I'm relating to you straight between me and you, young man. You're a man. You're responsible for you. But you're not just any man. You're a man after my own heart, 13-year-old David. And I think about 13-year-old David, and I go, what in the world was going on with 13-year-old David that God would make that statement about him, a man after my own heart? You can probably just turn me down just a bit in the monitor. I think I'm a little bit, a little bit loud, thanks. Man after my own heart. Man after my own heart. I think it means a couple things, and I put them in the notes. You know, the one is David was clearly a, pers a pursuer of God. He was after God's heart, right? But then there's that other feature to the, sta the, the statement, a man after my own heart. If you, if you said that that person, they're, just a, they're a man after my own heart, you're saying they're about what I'm about. They're like me. They, they, what they value is what I value. Imagine 13-year-old David and God saying that about him. What a statement, what a statement. And I just think, well, what was he about that God could say that in truth? God wasn't, he wasn't amplifying it. He was actually saying the truth over this guy's life. A man after me. Pick up the narrative, 1 Samuel 16. Jesse, <clears throat> he, 
He's, he's got a, a, a family of eight sons. He's in like the, the, the smallest tribe in one of the smallest towns of the smallest tribes in Bethlehem. Samuel is called by the Lord to go to this little town, Bethlehem, and to, to anoint one of Jesse's kids as Saul's successor. It's, it's such an intense scene for the town elders. They meet Samuel on the edge of the town and they say, are you coming for good or for bad? Because Samuel's renown was throughout the nation. Samuel was known as the prophet who never had one word that he spoke fall to the ground. Everything he ever said from the Lord came to pass. They don't know if he's coming for judgment. They don't know if he's coming for blessing. They don't know what's going on. The town elders are clearly worried. They meet him up at the end of the edge of the town, good or bad, he goes, to sacrifice to the Lord. And they go, okay. He goes, we're doing it at Jesse's house. And I can almost hear the town elders, sweet, Jesse, you are in such trouble. You are so in trouble, Jesse. Good. And, and, and Samuel says, Jesse, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sanctify your sons and get them all here before me. We're gonna sacrifice unto the Lord together. This is the biggest moment of this family's life. Honestly, they're nobody from nowhere. That's who they are. They're shepherds, nobody from nowhere. It's the biggest moment of their lives. And Jesse, he gets his kids in front of him and he realizes something good is about to happen. Samuel comes before Jesse's children, and here's Eliab, the oldest, Eliab. Tall, good-looking, the athlete, the firstborn, with all the firstborn stuff. He's that guy. And Samuel says to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord says, no, no. And he says the epic statement, don't look at his outward appearance, for I've rejected him. For God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward, God looks on the heart. And here's Abinadab, number two in line. No, not him. Here's Shammah, number three in line. No, not him. All seven, no, 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 no. The prophet is not confused. No, he goes, do you, do you have another kid? Because I know what God said to me. I'm here to anoint somebody king, and it's one of your kids. Think about it. He calls Jesse out by name. He's never met Jesse before. He knows what the Lord spoke to him. You have another kid? He goes, well, yeah, I do. He goes, we're not gonna sit down till you get him here. And I can just, you know, you can almost just feel what's in the mind of the brothers and what's in Jesse's mind but that's just a little boy. He's just a little one. He's out there with the sheep. Parentheses. The guy that took care of the sheep, he, he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. What do I mean by that? Well, to take care of sheep, you have to watch sheep. And after you watch them, you watch them some more. And then when you're done doing that, you know what you do? You watch them, and then you watch them, and then you do some more watching. Shepherds were known to not be the, the smartest guys around. 
And so it was evident that the little boy, the youngest one, he basically got the worst job. He got put out there. Now, never mind that this guy's a skillful musician. Never mind that he's got a strategist mind in military. Never mind that he's clearly some sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, strong, you know, guy in battle and, and hand to hand. Lion and a bear. Put him out with the sheep. And he's so little thought of by his dad that when the prophet comes and invites everybody to the, to the banquet at Jesse's house and Jesse's supposed to get all of his kids there, he doesn't bring his youngest son. He's completely forgotten. Well, go get him because we're not gonna sit down until you get him here. David walks up, he's a 16-year-old kid, bright complexion, red hair. I always kind of like that about David because my mom's got red hair. There's no such thing as a redheaded stepchild. That's not a negative, it's a positive. Heart like David starts with the hair. No, not really, but still, could. There he is, and he anoints him to be king over Israel. And here's what's wild. He anoints him, pours the oil over him, and he leaves. Samuel leaves. He doesn't give any commentary. He leaves, and there's David with oil all over top of him trying to figure out what just happened because he wasn't there for the other part. So the fact that this guy was a shepherd and that he was an anointed musician gives us a little indication about what God was talking about when God said he's a man from my own heart. He was doing something out there with those sheep that was getting the attention of heaven. He didn't have his father's attention, but he had the father's attention. He wasn't esteemed in the eyes of men and in his family's eyes, he was esteemed in the eyes of God. At 13. That's why there's so many admonitions in the scripture to young people. They don't, you know, don't let them look, despise your youth, you know, and, and to, to obey the Lord in the days of your youth. And, to treasure the word in your heart when you're a youth, how to keep your way pure by keeping accord of the word of God in your youth, how does a young man keep his way pure? All these admonitions to young people, because here's why. You don't have a junior Holy Spirit just because you're young. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We all have the same ability to turn the heart of heaven and turn the head of the Father toward us. And this is what I love about David. This statement over his life, a man after God's own heart, it didn't have anything to do with his giftings, it didn't have anything to do with his ability, it didn't have anything to do with his intellect, his wit, it didn't have anything to do with anything except there was something going on on the inside of him that God was identifying. See, here's the thing, to have a heart like David's heart, you don't have to be specially gifted in any way. In fact, all of us could have a heart just like David's. That's why I like prayer. Because you don't have to be good at anything to be good at prayer. You don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be wealthy. In fact, you don't have to have any natural gifts. All you've got to be good at doing is saying, help God. Help God. Help. If you can do that, you can be awesome at prayer. Some of us have a hard time saying help. 
And that's why God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Because the humble ask for help. Pours the oil over him. So we see that David at a young age has the attention of heaven. He's got God's attention and he's got God's affirmation. And that, for us, then we have to stare at David a little bit and say, what was it about this guy? Well, we get it. He's a, he's a man after God's own heart, and we kind of get what that's about. He wanted God's presence more than he, than he wanted men's approval. I mean, clearly that was one of the reasons why God rejected Saul and chose David, that he, he would be one that would obey the Lord, and, 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 but he, you know, he would you know, do it to the, at the expense of, of following the, the leadership of men. But, but there's something else going on with David. He was, he was one that was uh, identified and affirmed in the Scripture almost like nobody else. And, and so here's the thing. You know, David's heart wasn't just a sovereign deal. It wasn't just God picked this man out and said, that one's gonna have a heart after me and done. It wasn't, it's clearly not, and I'll prove it to you. Because we see parts of David's life when David is completely shipwrecked. He's so astray from the will and the desires of the Lord. This wasn't just a sovereign thing that was sort of controlling David, demanding David to have a heart after God. There's seasons of David's life. There's years at a time where David took the exit ramp, completely took the exit ramp. You know, we know the narrative of the story with Bathsheba. You know, in a season when the kings went out to battle, David decided to stay home. And in that season, he begins to look on this, this young girl that's actually a part of his own family. We don't usually catch that piece, but for someone to be living that close to the king's palace, they were part of the king's family. He begins to look at this 16-year-old girl who's, who's sunbathing as a part of his own family, and lust explodes in his heart, and he has her husband murdered so he can have sex with her. This is, this is filth and sin at the highest level. This is our David doing the unthinkable. My point is, it wasn't just the sovereignty of God making him love God. He had complete seasons when he was fully off track. The one that always catches my attention, though the, the Bathsheba one is horrifying, the one that I just go, I go, David, what were you doing again? It's when he's running from Saul, and he runs to hide from Saul, in the city of the Philistines. Okay, now his whole anointing in life is to destroy Philistines. And they've written songs about how many Philistines he's killed. In fact, they know the song in the cities of the Philistines. They have five chief cities. They know the song about David. David has slain his 10,000s, his 10,000s, his 10,000s, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has 10,000s. Oh yeah, they know that song in the cities of the Philistines. David shows up and they go, isn't that the guy that killed 10,000s of us? Remember that song, that top 40 song? They wrote it about him. <laughs> he, I mean, he's losing it. And so he realizes he's gotta come up with a plot, a scheme, so that they don't kill him. And he begins to act like he's crazy. And he begins to scratch at the door of the city gates. And he is so convincing that the king actually comes out and is like disgusted by how grotesque he's acting and says, just leave him alone. He's worse off like this than if we killed him. 
He's scratching, he's frothing, he's acting. This is our David. Completely off track, right? And then we see our David, and there's, there's seasons of his life we just love him. He goes and gets the ark, right? And, and the ark is in the camp of the Philistines. He starts bringing it back, and, and we have the problem. You know, Uzzah touches the ark, and he falls down dead. And David figures out in the law how we're supposed to get the ark back. They put it on the shoulders of the Levites, and then we're going to sacrifice every six paces. Does this for 20 miles. Beautiful thing. And he's out in front of the procession as they're coming into Jerusalem, and he's stripped down into his underwear, and he's dancing in front of the ark of the Lord. And he's so wild with praise and, 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 and so wild with worship of God. His wife, whose heart is, is really not for the Lord, she's offended with the exuberance of his worship. What's he doing out in front of that? Did you ever wonder, like, he's got his underwear on, he's out in front of the ark, it's like, that was a good thing? Yeah, it was an awesome thing. And, and, and the reason why it was an awesome thing is twofold. One... When a military force would have a victory over a, a foreign king, oftentimes they would put that king in front and sh the conquered would lead the pr procession. And David putting himself in front, he was saying, I've been conquered by the king that's coming behind me. But really, I think it was even deeper than that because so often when a king was in procession in any of the royal parades, the one that they would put in front, they would put this clown or this jester in front. And the jester, would, he would make merry and make a fool of himself. And the reason why he would make a fool of himself is because he would be saying, I am a fool. The real king is coming behind me. And that's what David was saying. I'm nothing compared to the king that's on the way. I know, that's our David, I know. I mean, the height of awesomeness in God and the depth of low, not awesome in God. Our David. So clearly not sovereign, right? Because we see the height and the depth you know, that he fell to and the height that he ascended to. So it's clearly not sovereign. So you go, okay, so what was it about David and his heart that he was able to be distinguished? And we find the answer in Proverbs chapter four. So I'm, I'm on the bottom of page one. I don't expect you to have followed me in the notes thus far. But... Proverbs 4 is super, super interesting. In fact, when you read Solomon's wisdom in Proverbs 4, I mean, in the book of Proverbs, I want you to think about this. Proverbs, uh, obviously, is a book of wisdom, and, and Solomon is the, one of the chief, chief he's the chief author of Proverbs. But here's the thing. Solomon had an encounter with the Lord, and the Lord granted Solomon wisdom. But oftentimes, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is expressing what was taught to him by David. And so in reading Proverbs, you're getting a ton of David, which is so cool to me. Because in the Psalms, you get a ton of David, and he's teaching throughout the Psalms. He writes songs, Psalms where he's teaching. But in Proverbs, we get to see what David taught his son. So Proverbs 4, Solomon explains this point. He says, when I was my father's son, tender and and the only one in the sight of my mother, I'm in verse three, now verse four, he also taught me and he said to me, let your heart retain my words. Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Keep them where? In your heart. 
David looked at Solomon when Solomon was a young man, and David said to Solomon, the issue that's the most important issue is that your heart would be instructed. Your heart. And he tells him, he goes on to tell him, you know, in, in Proverbs 4, he goes, get wisdom and get understanding. He goes, the spirit of revelation on your heart is the most important thing. In all you're getting, get wisdom and get understanding. Spirit of wisdom and revelation on your heart. David instructing Solomon, the chief issue for you, son, is the spirit of revelation on your heart. But even more than that, David expands it, and at the end of the chapter, he kind of, to me, he kind of capsulates. If you, could, if you could say, what was the, the deal with David's heart? What was the one thing about David's heart and the way that he went about stewarding his heart. Let me just say it that way. What was the one thing about how David stewarded his heart that differentiated him? We see it here in verse 23. He says, keep your heart with all diligence. For, from it, for out of it spring the issues of life. I know that's a verse you know. If you've been around the church any amount of time, you've heard that verse taught on but at the end of the day, David understood the importance of tending his heart. He understood that from the inside, that's what you are, not who you are on the outside. And how did he understand that? He probably understood that better than anyone. How? Because of when he was anointed king. Remember the scene, he comes in late. The prophet dumps oil on him. The prophet leaves, and he's sitting there with oil on him, and he's going, what just happened? Like 30 seconds ago, I'm watching sheep, and now I've got oil dripping off of me, and that was Samuel. Huh? And undoubtedly, he asked for an explanation. And the brothers, you know, they're kind of like trying to break it down for him. Something about, you know, Eliab, and God doesn't like how he looks, and you know, and, and he, but he, he doesn't care how you look either, but you're, you're on the inside, you're better than on the outside or something like that. <laughs> Somebody else said to me, Jesse, he goes, son, here's what the prophet said. God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the inside. And though none of us esteemed you outwardly, God has esteemed you because he's looked inward. And it made an impression on the 16-year-old boy. So that now when David has grown up and he's king, his chief instruction to his son is, retain the words that I'm about to tell you in your heart. In all you're getting, get wisdom and understanding, spirit of revelation, you need it on your heart. And he goes, then this, tend your heart. Because from your heart spring all the issues of your life. From the inside of you comes everything that you're about. It's not about what you look like on the outside. It's about who you are on the inside. And this is garden language, which is interesting to me. Uh, depending on the, the translation you read, when, when he says, uh, 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 out of it spring the issues of life, or out of it flow the issues of life, the keeping of the heart and, and the springing forth of life it's garden language, which we see throughout the scripture that the heart is oftentimes 
referred to as your garden. The whole book of Song of Solomon, so often in the New Testament, the heart is referred to as your own garden. And so David, he, he impresses upon his son that the, the key issue of, of who you are is about tending who you are on the inside. Now look, I know that we know this, but right now, we have to know this. Because what's happening in the world right now is there is a real absence of tending the inner life and there's a real emphasis on, on putting up outward appearances. And, and, and we see it massively because we live in a digital age and so much of, of what we do right now is not face-to-face. -face. It's, it's in our social media, it's in our emails, it's in our, our, our text messages and our whatever, you know, applications, Snapchat or whatever, Instagrams. It's in this, this public image that can be completely different than who you are on the inside. And, and to me, this is like a simple, it's a, I know a simple message, one you've probably heard, but I feel like it's a word from the Lord right now. Tend your heart. Tend what's on the inside. Because what's on the inside will determine everything that comes out of you. What's interesting in Proverbs 4 is he's gonna go on and he's gonna explain how to tend your heart, actually how to protect it. And he, and he describes this, he says, I want you to watch your mouth, your eyes, and your feet. In other words, what you say, what you see, and what you do. What you say, what you see, and what you do. See, we understand the principle, we get it, we've heard this message before, garbage in equals garbage out, right? We know that it's, it's, it's not, you know, uh, it, the defiling of the heart is about what you allow in. Right? And from that thing, that's when you, you speak out of that, that place of abundance that's on the, that's on the inside of you. And, and, and Jesus identified that. He goes, that's where men are defiled by what comes out of them, the expression of the wickedness that's on the inside of them. And, and, and so we, we get this principle, but, but I don't know that we really get it. Because I, I don't know if we really are dialed into not just even watching what we see, watching what we say, and watching what we do, but actually adding in what we have to have for the garden of the heart to be alive and buoyant and bountiful. And what I think is this, I think that so many people, they get going in life and life begins to lead them. And instead of them doing life, life is doing them. <laughs> And it's kind of like this. this is the process of most people, at least in America, is how we are. When we're 20, when we're in our 20s, we're, we're real idealistic and passionate. We're zealous, we're on fire. Even teenage, on fire. And, and, and something happens, life happens, and all of a sudden you have bills and babies and spouses and mortgages right? And life happens to you. And, and, and instead of like trying to be on fire and take the world for God, you're just like trying to like not set your house on fire, <laughs> right? And hoping your kids like love God maybe because it just gets crazy. 
and life starts happening. And I find this, that pretty much in the 30s somewhere, people begin to lose their idealism. And not, not, I'm not talking about the fanciful, mystical, way out there idealism. I'm talking about the passion of the heart, to, to, to be great in God, to be on fire for God. That doesn't seem realistic anymore. You know, and, and life is happening and like dragging, you know, you, you do life all week long, you sort of drag into church, like here I am, God, like I'm here, I made it. And, and, and that feels like the best you can do if you can even get there, which is where we're at right now. And you see it in, in statistics. Most people attend church about every other week because what are they doing on the other week? They're going, I can't do it. I can, I'm just gonna seek the Lord in a dream this morning, glory. There's something about a Sabbath rest. I'm gonna rest. I knew that commandment was good for something. Sleeping in on Sunday. Anyway, all right. It's not what it's for. Here's the point. When life encroaches upon you and you begin to lose your idealism, what you tend to do is you settle into the status quo and all the dreams that you had about being passionate and fiery and, and hungry for God and, and seeing God do wild and dramatic stuff, all of a sudden it just turns into like, I don't wanna cuss or cheat on my taxes. And our bar of Christianity just goes so low. And life happens. Well, somehow in the midst of life happening, all the spiritual principles are exactly the same still. Like they don't adjust because life is happening to you. They're actually all still the same. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, it's still, it's still the first and second commandment, right? And the gospel that has to go to every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, that's still the great commission. And all those, all those incredible thoughts that, you know, uh, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world and, and, and the works that Jesus did, we shall do also because he went to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit. All that stuff is still true. It's all still real, even if life is happening to you. I, I remember when I was 20 years old and I, uh, I, was, I was a newly saved, passionate for the Lord uh, on the college campus at University of Georgia and I was literally going out on campus and witnessing every single day. Now, I, I, didn't ha I hadn't had one evangelism class, so I was doing it wrong. Like, I'm, we don't tell people if they're witnessing they're doing it wrong, but I was doing it wrong because I was telling a lot of people they were going to hell often. And sometimes somebody needs to get told that occasionally, but if that's your main message, you probably need to like get a little bit more of the love of God. But I was really intense, really passionate, really fiery. And I remember this guy who is a leader, awesome guy, man of God, leader in the campus ministry. And he told me one time, he said, you need to settle down. And I know what he meant. What he meant was I probably need an evangelism course and I need to use a little more couth in sharing the gospel with people. He didn't, he didn't mean I should be less passionate about Jesus. But I, when I heard that, I thought, he's trying to get me to chill out. And I, you know, I was the youngest of three boys in my family, and my, my oldest brothers, they, they liked to beat up on me. I was the punching bag. I was the family. So it put, it put a fighter in me when, at a young age. And so I, I got this thing where people started, if they told me I couldn't or I shouldn't, do that or I needed to chill, that I always was like, I'm going the other direction. I'm gonna go more on fire. But I remember thinking to myself, 
He told me to chill out. No. And that's what I said. I never will chill out. And I remember making sort of this decision in my own heart. I'll never lose the vision for being radical for God. And what happens to you is this. You have that as a 20-year-old. It's real easy. And then, you know, in my case, life, ministry, family, you find yourself at 45 and, and you go, am I still this way? And I would just tell you, the way it works with me is this. I have seasons of burning passion and then I have seasons when I can tell that my heart doesn't have the same edge to it. And it's in those seasons that I better perk up and I better take notice because if I let that dullness settle in over my soul, then all of a sudden that dream of being passionate is gonna just relax into a dream of hopefully I don't mess up real bad. I'm talking to a friend of mine who's in ministry, he's 62 years old now, and he told me after doing years of ministry, he grew his church to 10,000. He said after doing years of ministry, he goes, my highest vision, he said, I just let it all beat me down to where my highest vision was, I didn't want to make a huge mistake and, and bring reproach to the ministry. That's all my vision was. He goes, I didn't care about winning anybody else to the Lord. My whole goal was, and this is the way he put it, he goes, I just didn't want to foul out. See, something happens when you lose that vision of passion. You quit leaning into God. You, you quit paying attention to your heart with all diligence, diligence. This is simple, but diligently looking after your heart is just taking an inventory every week or two and just saying, is this thing burning in me? Do I have the, the, the joy of my salvation? Am I burning in first love with Jesus? Or would he look at me and say, you've lost your first love? I mean, these are simple thoughts, but they're critical thoughts. And here's why, because I'm watching Christians right now and they're not tending their heart. And the, the, what happens is the outcome of not tending your heart over time, it's absolute destruction. Because the heart, as I said, is like a garden, which is Roman numeral three. Tending your heart is like tending a garden. Look at this verse in Proverbs. I, I thought this was so interesting. I was having a conversation with Caleb Andrews this week and, and I was telling him about this tending of the heart and David's diligent focus on the heart. And, and when you think about David and you think about the Psalms, you think about all the different times, you know, even when David, even when he messed up with Bathsheba, he comes back to the Lord in Psalm 51, he goes, create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit with him. Renew my heart again. Cast me away from your presence. I want my heart to burn within me again. But Caleb mentioned this verse to me. Man, it just resonated so strongly. I, let's just read it. Proverbs 24, verse 30. And I want to even go to the verse 34. I, it's not there in your notes, but he says this. He says, I went by the field of the lazy man. 
And by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, the lazy man and the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. I'll just (laughs) confess this to you. For years, I read that verse and I thought, (laughs) when I read that, I would think of the guy in the neighborhood who didn't cut his grass which is mostly always me. <laughs> I think, oh, I'm, just, I'm so lazy, I can't cut my grass. <laughs> That's not what the Lord's talking about. Listen to how intense the language is. The lazy man, devoid of understanding. He's talking about a heart. He's talking about a vineyard of a heart. See, as he's staring at someone who wasn't taking care of a natural field, the, the writer of the proverb is thinking about somebody who's not taking care of their own heart. He says, it's devoid of understanding if you don't tend your heart. And, and I started thinking about the natural process of a garden, and I wrote some stuff in the notes, but basically you get it, you get this point. Like you gotta put good things in the garden and you gotta keep bad things out, right? We gotta plant good seeds, we gotta get some flowers, we gotta get some fruit in there, some good soil, some fertilizer, we gotta get some water, some sunlight, we gotta get good stuff in the garden, and then we gotta make sure we don't have weeds, and, and we gotta make sure there aren't any insects that are eating up the vegetation or rodents that are in there you know, eating the tomatoes. We gotta make sure that the the fence is right around the garden. We gotta keep other junk out. Good stuff in the garden. The garden is buoyant, it's beautiful, it's bountiful. Bad stuff in the garden and the garden degrades. And and, and, you know, you think about it, have you ever ever done any gardening? And I have done very little, but I know this point. We worked really hard and we got a garden. We actually had stuff come up. We actually ate the stuff that came up. I was like, this is amazing. You put the seed in, the cucumber comes out. If you do this right for a little while, you get a cucumber. Takes a few months, but there it is. And you can eat that thing. It's a nuts. I mean, it's how this works. It actually works. But the next year, do you know how many cucumbers we got out of that garden? 0.0. That's zero. That's none. We got none. Do you know why? Because we didn't do anything to the garden. Now, Now, there's some gardens you can put perennial flowers in. Those are like a really good invention because they come back year after year after year, like, wow, it just kept coming, look at that. And you could have an awesome garden one year and you could put some perennial flowers in there and, and really tend it hard and everybody would look at that garden and go, awesome garden, and you could go an entire year of not taking care of the garden and even the next year you'd still have some flowers and stuff come up and then even if you went another year, you could still have a few things come up. But in just a matter of years, what was once a bountiful garden will be a complete wreck of weeds and nettles and thorns. And the only difference is, are you tending it? This is so clear what happens to people in Christianity. See, because they settle in to business as usual and going through the motions And though they're doing the outward, they're not doing the inward. 
and they're not tending their heart. They're, they're, they're not actually doing the intimacy with God where it's real on the inside. They're going through the motions on the outside, but what happens is the flame on the inside, it's dying down and it's getting colder and colder and colder. And then what happens is something dramatic negative happens in the person's life and maybe they make a really bad choice, maybe they get into sin and believers, they go, what happened? They were such a good person. They loved God. How could that happen? Well, it's real simple. If you don't tend the garden of your heart and you don't get rid of the weeds, eventually the weeds are gonna take over in your life. If what you see, say, and do is, is, is negative, it's gonna impact even the fruitful stuff that's on the inside. And this is what I see a lot of times with believers. They've got certain areas of the garden of their heart that they really tend, and then they've got other areas they try to ignore. Come on. But you know about, the thing about a garden is, if you really tended the one side and weeded it really good and paid attention to this side, and you put the fence around it real nice, but on this side, you just kinda let whatever happen, and it just had issues growing and growing, you know those issues would end up on the other side. Take a word from David. Watch out for your heart with all diligence. For from your heart springs all the issues of life. And here's the thing, this all boils back down to night and day worship and prayer. If we wanna be a community that loves God and, and, and worships Jesus and, and, and lays our life down in love for him because he's worthy of it and, and answers what Jesus was, was speaking about, my house should be called a house of prayer. We wanna be that kind of a community. There's, there's a place where it has to actually begin and it's not on the outside, it's in this inside. It's gotta be in here. That we actually say, I wanna tend my heart I want to make sure that the garden of my heart is burning in passion for God. I never want to settle into reality and lose the idealism of faith and hope and belief. So I have a vision that I would know the love of God so much, so much, that it's so real to me that I could walk up to somebody that doesn't know the love of God and I could just look him in the eye and just say, Jesus loves you and it would pierce them. I, I, I wanna be that man. I have a vision to, to see greater works than these, right? He said it, he promised it. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean that he's a liar. If we don't see it, it means we've gotta make some adjustments. And I never wanna be the guy that sort of crests 35, 40, and just, pfft. you just sort of settle in. You just adjust your expectations. No, I, I won't live that way. But it's not about being a hype man. It's about having a heart that's on fire. This is not about who jumps the highest, shouts the loudest. It's not about any of that. It's about what's burning inside. I've seen loud shouters and high jumpers with dead hearts because they were going through an external motion to meet a religious expectation and the entire time they were not tending the garden inside. 
See, the beauty of this is what I said a minute ago. This is not about who's most gifted. It's not. You can have zero gifts and have a burning heart. There's, I mean, it's just a really simple thought. Are you tending your heart with all diligence? I'm not talking about getting locked up in fear. I'm just talking about pulling the weeds out when you see them and putting in the seeds that you know are gonna grow. Chasing off the varmints, rodents, whatever, foxes that spoil the vine, and watering it with the presence of God. This is not rocket science, but it's critical. And that's what I feel like, that's what I feel like had David that, that young age, this guy, he was passionate. He developed a heart after God. He was just kind of doing it. And then the Lord identifies it through the prophet. He has to have it explained to him because he actually wasn't there. He goes, no, what was he said? He said, you have a heart after God, my heart. See, he goes, my heart is what mattered. And he makes it the pursuit of his life to tend his heart. And in seasons when he doesn't, it degrades. And in seasons when he does, he's passionate and fiery. And then when he's blowing it in certain seasons, he repents. Create me a clean heart, God. See, anybody can have a pure heart, a passionate heart. Anybody. You can be a total wreck in sin and turn to God, begin to pull the weeds out. Put the word in, put God's love in, put presence of God, prayer in, put that stuff in, and man, the garden will start growing. Anybody. But really, there's this thing that, it's like what Hazen said earlier, it's like, there's our job and there's God's job. God won't do our job and we can't do his. We can't make the growth happen, that's God, but he won't tend our garden for us. And oh, beloved, this is my prayer for us as a community, that we would be a people who are tending the garden of our heart. We're not getting swept away with a culture that is emphasizing externals and, and not dialing in on the inner life, the internals, that, that, that we would be a people that really love him and that it's evident because inside our hearts are alive. And this last Psalm of David, it's just, it's just so beautiful. It's, just the, it's the one that really, I mean, it's just, this prayer is just a, a a defining prayer, it's one that I love. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, may it please you, God. May it be pleasing to you. And oh, that we'd be that kind of a people. Unceasing prayer, night and day worship and prayer, it starts with people whose hearts are given to the Lord. You don't have to be perfect. I, that's one of the things that, that I, I, you know, I really, it, so I mean, you guys are super spiritual. No, we are not. We are absolute goofballs. We are trying, I mean, we're trying in the grace of God to like love God well, but we're just a bunch of goofy, weak folk that are leaning into grace and hopefully we're tending our garden, like hopefully. No, beloved, this is, about, this is where it starts, is having a heart that's alive in God. Last thought, we mentioned Bob Mayer. He just passed and went to be with the Lord. <clears throat> and I, I had the pleasure of praying with Bob several times together in the last few months. 
And Bob, he, he came to me a couple months ago. He says, anoint me with oil. Because we're gonna do what the Bible says in James. Anoint me with oil. You're an elder. You and Gabe, anoint me with oil. I want to be healed. 73 years old, battling through cancer, third time. Healed, healed, and third time, wrestling it out. 73 years old. Anoint me, put it on me. I just thought, I wanna be 73 with the eye of the tiger, <laughs> with a fire in my eye, going, anoint me. I want God right now. I was challenged. And then even just a week before he passed on to be with the Lord, Gabe and I just go visit him. And, you know, Gabe and I are talking on the way there. It's like, doctor's report's not looking good. And, and you know, we just talked about how well, you know, what we do is we align our faith with where the person is, and that's how we believe. If they're ready to go see Jesus, we're like, Lord, make it quick, come on. But if they wanna fight through it, we wanna fight. We get there, and I said, Bob, that's so great. I go, Bob, how old are you? He goes, that's a very direct question. I said, yes. He goes, it deserves a direct answer. I'm 73. I go, well, what do you think? How do you want us to pray? He goes, I've got more in me. More I want to do. He goes, there's, there's more in me. I want to be healed. I said, that's what I'm praying for. And Bob's with Jesus now. We didn't get the physical healing. He's with Jesus now. Man. 73. He hadn't settled in. He hadn't let reality settle him in. He lived in that place of idealism in God. Oh, man, they've been here for a decade. I just remember so many times during the middle of the week, Bob and Bev, and Bev's still here. She's with us. She loved Jesus. But so many times Bob's there, and he's in the prayer room just in the middle of the day just seeking God. I want to be 70 thinking I need more of God. Listen, 20-year-old, you know what? You may not have a, a hard time right now being passionate. You have a hard time with focus probably. <laughs> but you probably don't have a hard time being passionate. Focus your passion. Focus your passion into diligently watching your heart watching over it, tending over it, gazing on Jesus and tending your heart. Get focused in your passion. But 40-year-old, renew the idealism you had when you were 20. Find that passion. See, there's something about the person whose heart is pure, how spiritual passion follows. A pure heart is a hungry heart. They work together. You're in that 40-year-old place and life is happening to you. Stop the presses. St slow it down and figure out how you can get back to that place of first love and first passion. Look out for your heart with all diligence. I believe this is where we need to be. I believe this is where the body needs to be right now. People who are tending our heart well, paying attention to what we let in, and putting in the good and getting rid of the, the, the wicked stuff. Amen.